listening to Out of the Box Podcast with Rosie Tran. Guys, check us out on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. We are a top-rated podcast on Stitcher. And if you would like to share it with your friends, go ahead and click on the iTunes um, and leave a positive comment or review. That's the best way to share it with friends and family and help us get higher up in their rankings. I'm here today with Matt McKeever. He has a very successful YouTube channel on FIRE. That's Financial Independence retire early at also real estate investing matt how are you good how are you good i'm doing great so you are effectively retired in your 30s is that correct yeah so i quit the corporate rat race at the age of 31 um i'd originally always kind of planned on retiring at the age of 35 and uh, i was working in i'm a cpa by trade so uh an accountant and i'd always planned on retiring at 35, but I was in the pharmaceutical industry and found myself just with a job, a position that I wasn't loving anymore. I was on our corporate acquisitions team. So, you know, when we'd acquire another business, I'd be the guy sitting across from you and you'd be asking me if you're going to keep your job, if you're in the accounting department. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. And so I really didn't like uh, some of our business practices. I didn't like the person that I need to become if I wanted to keep climbing the corporate ladder. And then... Funnily enough, I found myself on the opposite side of the table when our company got acquired. Oh, my gosh. And so it was one of those moments where it was kind of like, you know, don't bullshit a bullshitter. And uh, I decided to resign and just retire early because I built up this real estate portfolio and it was providing me enough passive income that I no longer needed T4 or W2 income. I no longer needed active employment income to survive. So... Yeah, so I kind of just dropped out. I kind of joked that I jumped out of the plane without fully building my parachute, but I had the instructions. <laughs> so I knew you did I it knew all I was going down. to be okay. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, that's great. Now, I um, love the FIRE community, and I've had several guests from the FIRE community on the podcast, and I am also myself um, actively involved in, in investing, and you know, I've done crypto investing, investing, and also real estate investing. And how did you get started? Because, you know, most people, I felt the fear, you know, I had, my family did not invest growing up. We, I came from a middle-class family and my parents always felt that investing was very risky and they were very scared. And a lot of my friends had similar parents who had that viewpoint. And I just kind of felt the fear and got over it, you know, because I kept reading all these books that said, if you start when you're 20, it doesn't matter how much you save, you'll be a millionaire. <laughs> <laughs> because of compound interest. So I just jumped in. But, you know, a lot of people, they get analysis paralysis where they just read and read and read and read about investing and they never take action. And, you know, that's a common theme I've heard of. So what, you know, what instigated you to start investing at such a young age? Yeah, absolutely. So in university, um, a friend introduced me. Actually, his dad introduced him to the book and kind of forced it upon both of us. Rich dad, poor dad. Mm -hmm. And so I grew up middle class, similar to yourself. I grew up on a farm. So, you know, we didn't have a lot of resources at our disposal. We were kind of land rich, but cash poor. And so my parents were never invested, right? Like their version of investing is just holding money in a bank account. Sounds which, like my mom. <laughs> yes, which to me is crazy. It's it's not the right choice for most people. Under extreme circumstances, it may make sense. But for the average person that's trying to grow their net worth and, and say retire early, that's a terrible strategy. And so thankfully, I kind of had a bit of a rich dad with this friend's father who pushed this book on me. And rich dad, poor dad, like a lot of real estate investors, that was my gateway drug. That's what opened my eyes to everything. And then I just binged a ton of books in my fourth year <laughs> university on personal finances. And from that moment, I was hooked. The idea that I could create passive income or semi-passive income through cash flow and rental properties. And so the moment I got out of university, I just tried to save every penny from my day job. And at the age of 25, I ended up buying my first income property. And it was a house hack situation. So... So I'm not sure if you've discussed it with your listeners before, but the idea behind house hacking is you're going to buy a rental property or even just a single family home and either have roommates or have other units you can rent out. And ideally from that house hacking situation, you'll be able to live for free. And so I found myself in that situation, which again, just really gave me a powerful advantage with my personal finances where the average person spending usually 30 to 40% of their take home pay on accommodations. Whereas I was, 
being able to live for free in my own property because I took on four or five roommates when I was in my early 20s and into my mid and late 20s. And essentially that allowed me to save way more money than the average person. And then again, I would just save up that money, have it snowball, and then go buy another income property. But I completely understand your perspective or your experience with uh, you know, the analysis paralysis and the indecision. And I definitely suffered from that. I probably could have bought my property a year or two earlier, except for the fact that my parents were telling me I was crazy. <laughs> this was, it, they still, to this day, when I tell them I'm buying another property, they just look at me and say, why do you want to do that to yourself? You had a good job. You know? their, their dream for me was to get the corner office and the white collar job. And I think we I have the same parents. I think we have the same parents. <laughs> Sadly, I think a lot of people have the same parents and their intentions are well and well-meaning, but at the end of the day, it didn't really fit what I wanted to do. And so, yeah, I essentially, it was really hard for me to take that first leap. Again, I found myself lucky to kind of stumble into a mentor, someone that was working at the same accounting firm as me. Uh, he was a tax partner, or he was a tax manager at the time. He's now a tax partner, but he was a tax manager and he drove this big pickup truck. It didn't make sense to me. It didn't really fit his uh, profile. And so one day I saw that he had like a sign in the back of his pickup truck that was a for rent sign. I just kind of like went into his office. And I was just like, hey, I, I got a weird question for you. And he was like, sure, shoot, what is it? I think it was going to be some sort of complicated tax question. And instead I'm like, I couldn't help but notice you drive a pickup truck when no one else in our office drives a pickup truck. And today there was a for rent sign in the back. Are you by chance a landlord? And he just says, closed the door. And so I closed the door You're like, and uh -oh, we sit down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we sit down and he essentially told me, you know, I, I don't talk about this with a lot of people, but I can see that you're kind of a young hustler, a grinder. So yeah, I'll share my story with you. And it turned out at that time, he had about eight uh, single family homes that were being rented to students. And that's the exact type of property I was looking to buy. And so because I kind of had him trailblazing in front of me, he was maybe six or seven years my senior and because he'd already done it because he'd been successful i found myself willing to give myself permission to take that risk um because you know when i talked to my friends or family they all just thought why not just work harder at your day job and get a promotion or a raise faster rather than get distracted by this rental property but from my perspective it was you know that promotion or that raise is something i have to actively earn each year it's not something that at any point in time, I can even take a day, a week, a month off and expect to be able to come back in that job just to be sitting there with that promotion or race to still be at the same level. So the idea of buying a rental property to me, property to me was what I saw as being the stepping stones towards my financial freedom. Okay, Matt, I'm going to cut you off because I have so many things to comment on that you said. <laughs> but <laughs> if I don't cut you off, I'm going to totally lose my thought process. Um, so first of all, I think that's totally awesome that you had a mentor, but I also want to mention to the listeners who do get analysis paralysis that they don't need to have a personal mentor that they have in their life. They can listen to this podcast. They can follow you on YouTube. They can follow Mr. Money Mustache. They can follow some of the podcasts that I've, you know, put out with, with other fire people because that, you know, every single book I read, have read, including Rich Dad Poor Dad says, you know, it's good to get a mentor, but that doesn't mean that it has to be a physical mentor. Obviously, it's awesome that you had a physical mentor, but this is a chance for people to leverage the internet, leverage information to oh, yes. take care of their, you know, go towards their dreams without physically knowing someone because you might not have someone in your community that is a mentor. Absolutely. I 100% agree. And the only other thing I would build upon that with is, you know, don't be afraid to still go out and look for an in real life mentor, but also have those online mentors. And the one thing that I find with our generation or with millennials in general is that far too many people are afraid to just go out and network. And there's honestly mm. so much value and power in networking. And I highly recommend that take that risk, go out there. The worst case scenario is you're going to waste, you know, an evening. But honestly, if you talk to three or four individuals, I guarantee one of them will be helpful, will help you. Because at the end of the day, you know, a lot of the mentors in my life that I came across, they saw a spark in me that was similar to them when they were younger. And that's going to be the same case when you go out to those networking events. So absolutely, right. you don't need an in real life mentor, but at the same time, why not try and get both? Exactly. That's great. And I also wanted to comment on something you said where 
you said your mentor gave you permission, kind of gave you internal permission, not like giving you literal permission yeah. to take risk. And I just want to, because when you talk to your family or friends, you know, they said, why don't you just work at your job? I just want to talk about that because that's actually an amazing way to look at something, but also it shows the roots of the wrong type of thinking that people like us was raised with, mm -hmm. which is that buying an investment property is a huge risk. And actually something that one of my, you know, mentors who's passed away, Jim Ron, who I love, I don't know if you know of him. He, I've heard of him. Yeah. He's an inspirational guy. You know, unfortunately he's passed, but one of his motivational videos, he, he makes a joke. He says, you know, people say, well, what is the risk in investing? He's like, what's the risk in not investing? He's like, <laughs> you know, so there's, People Absolutely. look at it all the time like, oh, investing is risky, investing is risky, but they're not looking at the other side of it where not investing is actually riskier because you're taking a chance, like you said, with being downsized. You're putting all your eggs into one basket saying, hey, I hope this job works out. Guess what? We're in the 2000s. People are getting laid off all the time. Things are becoming electronicized, roboticized, and streamlined. So actually not investing is a huge risk. And I want to make that a very clear point for some yes. of the listeners because people get analysis paralysis says, oh, what if I lose money? What if I lose this money? What if you make hundreds and thousands of dollars? What about that side of it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it's far too often. Being diversified is rarely a bad idea. And diversifying your streams, diversifying your cash flow streams is yeah, I, I can't praise that strategy enough. And the nice thing is with real estate investing, you know, each property I have is a slightly different stream. And particularly if you start investing in different niches or in different cities or neighborhoods, again, that's just adding one more sliver of diver diversification to uh, your portfolio, to your cash flow. Okay, so let's talk about that. You said they're all different streams. What does that What does that mean to a listener who doesn't really know that much about real estate investing? Yeah. So what I mean by that simply is, you know, again, with your day job, literally it's binary, essentially. You either have it or you don't. Where with income properties, let's say you own a fourplex, so it has four different units. You know, if one of your tenants moves out, you still have three other tenants that are paying you every month. Or if you have one tenant that stops paying you and you're going through an eviction process, you still have three other tenants that are helping you carry the property, helping you carry the mortgage. So it's less of a binary thing there. So each individual tenant that you have is one more revenue stream. It's one more cash flow center for you. So for example, myself, between myself and my business partners, I think I'm at about 80 individuals cutting you a check every month. And That's so awesome. a lot of people think that, you know, real estate investing is really risky. What if they don't pay you? But realistically, what are the odds that all 80 people are going to stop paying me on the same month? Just, Especially if your properties are in different areas, you exactly. know, if, even if there's a natural disaster, if you have a property in a different neighborhood, it's not going to be affected. Exactly. hundred percent. Yeah. So that's, that's really awesome. And it's a really safe way. You know, a lot of people think investing is so risky, but you know, just like Robert Kiyosaki says, you can take calculated risk where, yeah, you're taking a risk, but you're also making sure that you're protected. And like building upon that too, by having something else invested, it actually lets you take more calculated risks in your day job too. So if a person doesn't want to retire early, like maybe you love your day job, but why not just be in a position, you know, some people refer to it as FU money or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> but the idea, like I found myself once I built up a bit of a real estate portfolio and knew, you know what, I'm never going to starve to death again. And mind you, I live in Canada. We have good social services. So that was probably never going to happen. <laughs> But once, once, hashtag once shade on the US. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, you know, once you have a few of those income properties and they're working well for you, it then actually gives you more power in your day job. You know, I found myself more willing to negotiate. So, you know, about six months before I ended up leaving my day job, once we were acquired, uh, and this actually kind of refers back to a previous guest you had, Financial Samurai, talked about it, but. Um, I was able to leverage the fact that I had cash flow from my rental properties and negotiate a better retention bonus for myself because I knew that there was a good chance they were going downsize our operations in London, Ontario. So I was able to come in and actually get about double the retention bonus I otherwise would have. And it was only because of the fact that I had real estate, a real estate portfolio backing me that I felt comfortable risking it. Whereas the same, like my coworkers and other VPs and stuff at the company, they were too... They were too focused on a mindset of scarcity. They were, they were too shaking in their boots. They were, they yeah, were too so worried. Like, yeah. 
they were just like, yes, sir, no, sir, that sort of situation because they didn't have any power. So they were scrambling, you know, they were sending out the resume to everyone. They were taking any job interview they could. And meanwhile, you know, they were being overworked because that's often what happens when you get acquired, that they're going to demand more and more work from you simply in the hopes that you get to keep your job. Whereas, again, I found myself in a position where I, I found myself, at least whether right or wrong, I felt like I had more power because I knew the fact that I didn't have to have that day job. So even for the people that aren't focused on retiring early, like if you love your job, that's awesome. But I still don't think that the idea of investing is a bad idea for you. I still think that you can reap all sorts of benefits from that. I think that's a great point. And you're coming, like you said, you mentioned scarcity. You're coming from a viewpoint of abundance. You're coming from a viewpoint of value. You bring value. You don't need to be desperate to keep your job. You have other things going on, you know, and it really gives you strength in in the situation. Yeah, 100%. And again, it's just one of those things that a lot of individuals, you know, our parents' generation, it, it was a different playing field for them. And I completely sympathize with their perspective. But the idea of working for a company for 30, 40, 50 years plus, unless it's, you know, a, a government institution, it's highly unlikely these days. And so it's natural for a lot of people to have gaps in their employment and different situations rise up, whether it's, you know, their own personal situation that led to it or the corporate situation led to it. But just having something to help you smooth your income year over year by investing. And again, it doesn't have to be real estate investing. It could be investing in stocks, ETFs. You know, you could be doing hard money lending. There's a huge plethora of options these days, especially like we have peer to peer lending. There's so many opportunities and it's just a matter of figuring out what niche works for you what do you find engaging and what what will work with your long-term plan correct and it's all about taking the first step i know when i was petrified of investing you know i remember reading a book that was talking about compound interest and i you know it basically said you can't lose and <laughs> as, <laughs> as long as you're putting something aside and it's for the long term you can't lose and i remember taking that step. And I think I started investing in the early 2000s. And I did, you know, go through the recession. And honestly, Matt, this sounds completely crazy. But I wasn't affected by the recession at all, because I had my game plan. I I was investing consistently, I bought a property, which by the way, the property that I bought during the recession, I think, halved in value while you know during the recession but it didn't matter because i had cash flow coming in so it, did, it didn't really matter at all whether it you know was worth a dollar or two hundred thousand dollars it didn't matter yeah and that's something i come across all the time because right now in canada where i'm investing we've seen a huge real estate boom we didn't have the same major correction that the united states did uh you know earlier and or in the late uh 2000s before 2010 and so right now there's a lot of speculation that we may see a major correction in Canada's real estate market. And, you know, whether they're haters on YouTube, just friends and family, they're concerned for myself and my financial situation. They'll come to me and be like, what happens if the market crashes? What if you lose 50% of the value of the property? And my explanation to them, like yours, is I'm investing for cash flow. So, you know, usually traditionally during any sort of recession, rent prices do not correct or they do not correct significantly. So right now, the way my portfolio built, I could afford to take on, say, a, you know, a 30, 40 percent reduction in rents and still be break even from cash flow. That's not what I invested for. That's not an ideal situation, but I could survive in that situation. So, again, if you're investing for cash flow, if you're following kind of the bigger pockets rule of the one percent rule which is something I'm able to uh, achieve here in the London, Ontario real estate market. The idea that you get, say you buy a property for $100,000, you want to rent it out for $1,000 a month. And if you're investing with that sort of metric, that sort of criteria, it, it's, a, in my opinion, a very safe investment strategy because you're going to get consistent cash flow, something you can count on, regardless of where the underlying assets valued at that moment in time. It is. And I, I remember even thinking that I remember the value of the property I purchased going, I, I think it was over 50%. I bought it for 150. I think it went to like 70,000. And I and someone in my building said, Oh, my God, are, are you you know, these units are worth 70,000. And I was thinking, who cares? <laughs> like it, didn't, it didn't even phase me. I was like, you know, who cares? That's amazing. Yeah. Hats off to you. It would phase me a little, I'd be lying. But at the end of the day, yeah, if you got that cash flow, that's what really matters.
And also, like you mentioned earlier, there's a lot of different strategies. House hacking. You know, you talked about house hacking having no expenses. You could also en end up house hacking, you know, and have cash flow from house hacking so that you're living free and getting some small cash flow. We were doing yeah. Air we were doing Airbnb, you know. So Yeah, and Airbnb, you know, when I first started investing in real estate, that wasn't he even here in Canada. And now it's becoming a major component for a lot of real estate investors, particularly smaller landlords, simply because the returns you can get on Airbnb are fantastic. And same for an individual that's renting. Depending on the exact rental lease you have in place, you may be able to rent out your place or sublet aspects of it. So we also have what's called rent hacking. So even if you're not in a position today, whether it's because of lifestyle or your finances to buy a place, there still may be opportunities where you can live for free by rent hacking or subletting or Airbnb out an aspect of your uh, unit. Again, you obviously depends on your exact lease and the rules in your state or province, but there's a lot of opportunities out there for individuals to lower their personal overhead. And honestly, at the end of the day, if you want to increase your financial situation, you need to do what we call grow the gap. You either need to increase your income, decrease your expenses, or ideally do both at the same time. Correct. And I think that rent hacking is a great idea for someone who doesn't have the money um, it's essentially getting a roommate or or renting out a room as an Airbnb or renting out part of the space as an Airbnb. You know, there's so yeah. many options out there now. And I really think that, you know, if you're not taking advantage of what's out there, you know, you're missing out because the Internet revolution has really leveled the playing field. You know, we hear a lot. I don't know about in Canada, but we hear a lot in the United States about income inequality, income inequality, income inequality. Mm -hmm. And I do think that it's an awful issue and, and that, but, but I do think that there's many things that have leveled the playing field. Hey, instead of staying at ho in a hotel and giving Paris Hilton's family hundreds of thousands of dollars, you can rent out a room for sometimes a hundred, 200 night in your own home and act as a hotel and kind of take some of that income towards yourself instead of a giant corporation. So there's definitely a lot of ways um, to get income through real estate and other investing. Do you do other forms of investing other than real estate? Yeah. So another component of my investing is uh, because of my personal background, uh, I was a financial controller for a publicly traded uh, company. You know, I do invest directly into equities. It's not something that I would recommend for everyone. I myself, you know, trade in some small cap uh, speculative uh resource companies, but as well, I've built up a drip portfolio. So that's a dividend reinvestment plan. And uh, I know in the United States, it's actually even easier to do with like a lot of the larger blue uh, blue chip stocks like 3M or Johnson & Johnson and similar companies. But in Canada, we can also do with our big banks and a few other uh, resource and larger uh, blue chip companies. But I think it's also just such an awesome way for you to get start investing in uh, stocks. So literally all you need to do is you buy like the paper certificate off another individual and there's internet forums and boards like drip.org or dripinvesting.org and other websites you can check out. But again, to me, I originally got introduced to the idea of stock investing because at the time I was born, my mom was working for uh, 3M. And so at that time they had a policy in place where they'd give every, um, every child that was born to an employee one share certificate. And that kind of opened my idea to the, uh, the ability of, you know, having these dividends come in every quarter, or if it's, you know, a REIT here in Canada, it might be every month. And just having that little trickle of income again. So I've slowly built up a drip portfolio again. It was one of those things where at first I was making like $5 a month and you're like, Hey, you know what? That could buy me one beer a month. And then all hey, of a sudden, it's a free beer. Know, right? And then all of a sudden it's 30 bucks and you're like, Hey, I could buy a case of beer. And I would just keep kind of playing with myself with this. It, it's $60. I'm like, Hey, that's my cell phone bill. And just this idea of being able to replace some of those expenses with, uh, with dividends, they're coming in either monthly or quarterly again was very similar to, the idea of cash flow from a rental property to me. But the nice thing was because I'm mainly investing in blue chips with my drip portfolio, I, I don't have to necessarily watch it the same way. And I don't need to be involved the same way as I do with my real estate portfolio. Because at the end of the day, depending on the class of neighborhood you're investing and the type of investment you have with real estate, it can definitely be a much more hands-on version of passive income um, than say an ETF or dividends.
Now, I'm glad you mentioned that you wouldn't recommend this portfolio for everyone because this is a good time for me to tell the listeners that I am currently not a licensed financial advisor and this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. This is not financial advice, disclaimer, 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 hashtag disclaimer. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I, I definitely find myself doing that a lot too just because of my CPA license, you know. I'm not giving anyone financial advice. It's simply my experience. And at the end of the day, each individual's experience is going to be very unique to them. And so there's not a cookie cutter, one size fits all model, but there's a lot of opportunities for all of us. It's just a matter of finding what works for you. Correct. And listeners, if you want to, then I would um, advise talking to a certified financial planner or licensed financial professional in your area for your specific situation, because this is currently for entertainment purposes only. Okay, so you you get your place and it starts snowballing. Now the snowball effect is kind of like um, compound interest, but I would say, you know, on the real estate side, what was your experience getting into it? And what were some of the trials and tribulations that you got, you know, faced with other than, you know, the typical negative naysayers? Yeah, so, you know, the first uh, three income properties I got, I bought one a year each year and essentially because I kept my lifestyle low, I'm just saving up as much money as possible and I'd go buy the next student rental property. And so what ended up happening was once I'd hit uh, my fourth or fifth mortgage, the banks here in Canada have some lending restrictions, which makes which make it much more difficult in order to say, get your next mortgage after that. So I found myself being much more, it was becoming more and more difficult because I need to save up more and more down payment and be able to prove more and more liquid assets in order to satisfy the bank so I could get that next mortgage. But so I, I, do, I do want to stop you really quick and mention that you did use the bank. You didn't buy these properties in cash. And that's a form of leverage which helped you accelerate yes. your portfolio. Yes. And so that's a question I get all the time is people, a lot of people are raised to think that all debt is bad debt. And that's not true. Debt that's earning you income, debt that's earning you more income than it's costing you is good debt. You know, Debt that's getting you an education that will result in a higher paying job, that can be good debt. But consumer debt, you know, consumable Shopping, debt, you know, yeah, all that stuff. Going, going out to eat, stuff like that. Yeah. Exactly. That's that's bad debt. That's the debt you want to avoid. Whereas with real estate investing, most of us probably wouldn't be real estate investors if we had to buy our properties outright in cash. It's the power of leverage that lets us scale our actions and really increase our return on investment and particularly our cash on cash return. And, uh, and I yeah, also so th- like to mention oh, that, that a mortgage is actually a very safe instrument because typically the payments are set, you know, your expenses. And if you have a good you know reserve and, and you're conservative with it, it can be very, very safe. You know, your expenses going in. Exactly. hundred um, percent. So, yeah, other than just general naysayers and then hitting a bit of a financing issue, you know, I, I experienced similar problems that a lot of landlords will one time or another with student rentals in particular you can end up with bad group of students that will do a lot of damage and so you know i definitely have stories of they punched a they took out an entire wall between a bathroom and a hallway why you wouldn't want a wall between your bathroom and the hallway is beyond me but again it's one of those things where if someone looks at the surface they're like oh my god that's terrible that's going bankrupt you but no, it's actually just some drywall and some date and some trim. And you're like, you know, it, it's a frustrating and it costs maybe $2,000 to fix that entire issue. But at the end of the day, you can pass that cost on to the students or in Canada, you know, we're getting guarantors. So the parents are kind of guaranteeing the students mm-hmm. and we're able to go after the parents if we have to in order to try and be made whole. And so in that case, I think we maybe had $2,000 in damage and we were able to recoup $1,600 of it. So, it, you know, ideally you'd recoup all of it, but it's just a business expense. And I think one thing a lot of beginner landlords, I find, make a mistake of is making everything personal. And so it's something I try and remind people all the time is, you know, no one woke up today deciding to screw Matt McKeever over. <laughs> Worst case, like, I'm just, I'm not that important, right? And most people aren't that important that you don't have someone that's actively waking up to try and destroy you. And so it, it is important to not take these things personally, to just be logical and rational and try and talk your way through it rather than getting emotional and having emotional outbursts right away. Even though that may feel cathartic in the moment, it's not going to long term help you or your business. Now, did you now did you have any issues with your age? Um, I'm a young landlord and I actually have a property manager who's older because I felt that 
I wasn't getting no respect, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> so you have an yeah, adorable, I, I, you have adorable little baby face. Are people, you know, like, hey, yeah. I don't want to pay you. <laughs> yeah. So, we, you know, and again, it's one of those things where you can either find a problem with that or you can find an opportunity. And so we really focused on the opportunity. And what that meant was because we were renting to students, a lot of these students were trying to treat us as peers. So when we'd be showing them the apartment, they would just talk openly with us and they'd be like, oh man, this would be such a great house to throw a kegger. And you're like, huh. <laughs> you know what? I'm sorry. Your application got denied. That's so weird. Um, so it's one of those things where we're able to figure out a way to, you know, try and use it to our advantage. But you're absolutely right. You know, there would be parents that would be talking down to us simply because they felt like they were the authority figure there. And they would tell us how a property should work or, you know. Meanwhile, they, they own give us... zero properties. <laughs> Exactly. And so, you know, again, that can be frustrating at times, but it was one of those things where I guess this is maybe a bit of a tangent, but one recommendation I would have for people is, and I kind of learned this the hard way when I was working in public accounting, I was just really open and honest with everyone about what I was doing. I was like, real estate investing is the best idea ever. Like, I don't know why everyone's not doing this. This is awesome. Like, why not make as much money, you know, passively as you can from your day job? But one thing to be aware, if you're sharing this with coworkers and particularly with, say, your supervisor or your boss or the person that's going to choose that you're negotiating salaries with, they sometimes will hold that against you. And I definitely found myself in that situation where employers, you know, when we come raise time and we're negotiating for a raise, they would say, oh, Matt, you don't really need this raise. You got your real estate or just hey, like that has nothing to do with how hard I work right? here. <laughs> exactly. And that was definitely something I found frustrating. So one piece of advice I would have for younger individuals that are maybe trying to both build up their passive income and climb the corporate ladder at the same time is just be cognizant of who you share this with. I'm not saying lie and at all, but I'm just simply saying you don't have to be an open book either. And Correct. so, you know, then when I moved on to my next job, you know, I was very selective with who I shared that information with. They were only people that were truly confident of myself. I think being selective is a really, really good idea. Yeah, because you never, you never know. I, Mr. Money Mustache was on our podcast. I don't know if you've, you're familiar with him. Yes, absolutely. And, yeah. And and he talked about. I'm not sure if he talked about this on the podcast or privately to me, but he, I mean, it's not private, but just off the podcast. But he talked yeah. about that. You know, he when he started doing early retirement, he was like telling everyone, but there was people that got really jealous and said, well, you can't do that. You can't do that. You're, you can't save 50% of your income. It's impossible. And they were just ready to, you know, the retirement police, as he calls them, try to tear you down. Yes. Yeah. And cause some people will view it as a value judgment, right? That because they're not saving 50% because they're not going to retire at a young age. They're going to think that because you're doing it, that that's inherently a value judgment. And it really isn't. It's simply, a, a prioritization issue, right? For some people, it's more of a priority to get control of their financial lives right away. For others, for whatever reason, it isn't. But yeah, 100% agree. Be very selective with who you share that sort of information. It is. There's a lot of jealousy. People can... It's really weird. You know, they say that money is a tool and it only reflects, you know, your values yes. and other things like that. So that's why a lot of people that win the lottery and get easy money, you know, they lose it right away because they have no concept of how to manage it. Or, you know, because and or or it re will reflect their personality. So if you're a jerk without money, when you win the lottery, <laughs> you have, you know, you're more of a jerk. Right. So. Yeah. So money, it represents a lot of things to a lot of different people. And so does finance. And so a lot of people will get jealous. You know, I've definitely had had mixed reactions from people wanting to emulate to wanting to tear down. And the Internet is also a bad place for that, because there's definitely a lot of people who will make a random comments <laughs> but yeah. it sounds like and, you you didn't have that much resistance except for the issue with the bank loans yeah yeah so beyond that that was really it um you know from the age of 25 i had a counter on my cell phone that like it was a countdown clock that counted down the days until i was going to reach 35 because that was always my plan to retire so all my inner circle knew about it some of them you know kind of thought it was a joke others thought it was inspiring and awesome but i think circling back to what you were saying the important thing is you know, when you're sharing this information and when you're getting feedback on it, is just be really aware of the source of that information. You know, uh, like why should you take landlording advice from someone that's never been a landlord or someone that was only a landlord once and was by accident because, you know, they had a job transfer 
developers. So they decided to rent out a property that was never bought to be an income property. And yet they decided to convert it because they couldn't sell it to the price they wanted. And so usually I find the people that are being critical about my investment strategies or my personal finance choices, usually they haven't actually done any research. They don't have any experience in that field. And so I think that's just really important. You know, I'm not saying create an echo chamber where it's only yes men around you. But <laughs> okay. Be aware of, of who's telling you what and why they're telling you that and kind of what what's coloring their perspective. Got it. Yeah, I definitely think that's that's a good point. You know, what about, you know, when I looked started before I took the merge into real estate investing, I noticed that there was a lot of horror stories online and I kind of scratching my head, you know, I've been doing investing now for over 10 years because I have had trials and tribulations, but nothing like these awful horror stories that I read online. And I don't know, you know, you're investing in, in the in the London, Ontario area, and you probably have colleagues that invest. Are these just, you know, m- bitter people online that have failed and just spreading these negative stories? Or I mean, what's going on here? It's like I that was something that held me back for probably a couple years longer than it should have. Yeah, it's a good question. It's a fair question. Um, I think obviously it depends on the situation, but for myself, you know, the worst tenants that I've ever had that have done the most destruction with hindsight, you know, I could easily see how it was my fault. You know, I was in a rush or your screening process, you mean? Yes. Yeah. So like, you know, what with hindsight, I could see that my screening process wasn't effective. But and so like, at the end of the day, I guess I think it's important to whenever possible to take responsibility for the situation so literally every time that i've rented to a bad tenant it was my fault you know there was there were signs or indications that this maybe wasn't going to go perfectly you know they weren't able to come up with a deposit right away but they had a soft story about why that was and you know you let it go that one time but then immediately they have issues with being able to pay you regularly on the monthly basis or they they commit to a payment plan and then never actually follow through on that action and so yeah, I, I think that it's honestly, you know, you when you're screening a property, you are handing over a very valuable asset to a potential tenant. And yes, we have insurance in place to cover us for the most extreme of situations. But at the end of the day, you know, you do need to be very careful with your screening process. You need to trust your sixth sense, your sixth sense or your gut or whatever you want to call it, because um, it, it's not always just fact based, but. Again, I think most of us, if we're careful, if we take our time, we don't just say yes to the first person that wants to rent your property, that you'll find the right tenants. And it really comes down to finding the right tenants. You know, in real estate, they say that you make your money on the buy. And same with like you make your cash flow at the screening. So if you screen well, you will cash flow well. If you, you know, do your homework before you buy the property, you'll have a good investment. So I think the he is just screening it. And so, again, all the landlords I've seen that have had issues and problem tenants, it's very rare that you're truly blindsided by what we call in Canada a professional tenant. Which okay. is someone that knows, it's someone that knows the rules inside and out and will abuse them to the absolute maximum. Because, uh, and my understanding is like California is maybe the worst jurisdiction um, for potentially aiding uh, professional tenants, but then Ontario, Canada. For, and on most landlord forums, it's kind of considered second. Um, and so the issue there is, it like, again, most people aren't waking up to sign to screw, to screw you over. over. <laughs> it's, you know, the, they have life situations. They're maybe, you know, putting them under extreme stress and maybe they're taking it out on you or the property. But again, you know, we have laws in place. We have insurance in place. And so a lot of those issues will help mitigate whatever risks or damages are done. So i like, I've never met a landlord that was bankrupted because of one bad tenant. There may be uh, stories out there that are true about that, but usually it's an unfortunate, it, it ruins your profit for that year or that month at least, but it's something you can rebound from. So I think that in real estate, as long as you buy right and you're screening right, there's very few truly critical errors that are going to blow you out of the water. That's a great idea. Now you mentioned a bad, the bad tenants being your fault. Do you, um, would you say that it's so you're saying it's a landlord's responsibility? What are some red flags that you would mention for people who are thinking of getting into real estate investing and like kind of scared? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, um, there's an interesting book I just or audio book I just finished called Everybody Lies. And it talks about if you go on these peer to peer lending websites, um, 
there's, you know, there's correlation between certain terms and usages, you know, like if someone promises to pay you back, if they bring up religion or family members being sick or a bunch of these other things, that that's actually often used by predatory individuals. Whereas if they oh, take ownership of the situation, if they're like, yeah. And so I don't highly recommend checking out the book. It what is the book called again? Really interesting insights. Uh, Everybody lies. Everybody lies. And I think the subtitle is like the truth behind big data. Okay. And so it's a fascinating perspective because it really looks at the data in aggregate and tries to get rid of anecdotal stories. And so I think that the key is, you know, so what are some other red flags for people? I guess if, if a person can't, if it's traditional in your market for someone to pay first and last month's rent deposit or a damage deposit, if they're not able to do that, if they're not able to comply with what kind of the standard practices are in your market, you should honestly probably keep looking. And so, you know, there's times that you still have a heart, but I kind of <laughs> joke that like I used to wear it on my sleeve too much as a landlord. So, okay. you know, at the end of the day, this is a business. We don't, you know, a person doesn't have a, a inherent right to rent your property, right? You're, you're the business owner. You get to decide who enters your establishment and rents from you. And so it's important to take ownership of the situation. So I think, you know, so one of the biggest problems is just not having a large enough pool of candidates to choose from. So making sure that your ads are done really well, you know, have a ton of photos for your ads, have lengthy descriptions. You know, in my market, if you want good tenants, good tenants don't like to call you on the phone often. They like to text. So have your text number on that Craigslist or that Kijiji ad or share it with them once you, you know, pre-screen them. If it's traditional in your market, do credit checks, do a credit check. Um, depending on what sort of information you can request from them. If you're allowed in your market to request, you know, employment information or employment references and actually call references when they're given to you. I don't know how many landlords will request references and then never call or never follow through on it. And because, you know, the times that I've done it and I found out those references to not be valid, like you stop immediately. Do not proceed with that. <laughs> um, and that's something that's really easy to do. It's a handful of phone calls. If, if the person that's the reference doesn't answer, leave a voicemail. If you can't get through to them, make it known to the person that provided the reference and just say, hey, I'm really trying to, uh, you know, check your references and it's just not working right now. It sounds it sounds kind of similar to actually what you were talking about with your with your J job before when you were practicing. Um, as a CPA, where you, you're saying, don't come from a scarcity mentality. Yes. It's the same thing here. Hey, don't come from a scarcity mentality. Someone else better will come along. You don't need to be desperate to have someone in there that you're going to get, you know, Mr. Crazy payments, you know, five yes. payments a month instead of one payment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's better to have it go vacant one month and get a perfect tenant in than it is to fill it immediately. And so, yeah, exactly. Like you said, a lot of people are very scared investing. And so the idea of one month and not collecting that thousand dollars of that two thousand dollars in rent, and they just think that that's the worst thing possible. So they'll take on anyone just in order to not lose that thousand or that two thousand dollars for the first month. It's better in the long run to get the right tenant that's going to treat you well, that's going to treat your property with respect, and you're just going to have a much better relationship and a much more enjoyable time being a landlord. Yeah. And the, the same thing with your tenant and also your uh, girlfriend or boyfriend or spouse. <laughs> Take your time. Yes. <laughs> Find the right yes, person. Yeah. It's okay to be choosy. <laughs> it's okay to be single. <laughs> yes. Exactly. I'm married, but it's okay to be single for a while to make sure you have the right guy or girl. And it's okay to be have a couple months empty to have the tenant that's going to pay on time and not punch holes in the wall and, and knock out the uh, bathroom wall. <laughs> Yes, exactly. Um, no, do you guys have, in Canada have the triple real estate benefit, which is the, all the tax deductions as well? Um, so, yes, except for on our principal residence, we don't. So my understanding is in the United States, you can actually write off the interest for your principal residence, the property you're living in. Mm -hmm. um, we can't do that in Canada. But outside of that, there's still lots of opportunities, right? You know, for an investment property, you can write off the interest. You can amortize the property or depreciate it. So there's a lot of advantages there that uh, for tax planning purposes, and particularly if you're able to build up a large enough portfolio, again, there becomes certain advantages to that where all of a sudden, you know, you can write off mileage, you could write off your cell phone or at least a, a portion of it. And so, again, as an employee, usually an employee is the worst 
class from a tax perspective because you don't have a law of power, you don't have a law of write-off, you don't have a law of opportunity to uh, have any tax advantages. I want to talk about that because that goes back into our original conversation in the beginning of the podcast where you talked about you know, people saying you're going to take that risk, Matt, you're going to take that risk by owning a property. And this is actually another example of how, uh, you know, safe real estate is as an investment where one, you're getting cash flow. The triple benefit is one, you're getting cash flow Two, you're getting tax deductions. So that's, you know, another benefit. And three, you're getting someone to pay down your mortgage. Yeah. So some people yeah. don't understand that there's, it's not just you know, this one aspect, there's actually a triple benefit to owning real estate over, over other asset classes. You know, I own other investments, but real estate really has it all going on. And recently, because of my YouTube channel and stuff, I've started mentoring a few local individuals. And uh, it's just so funny, some of the misconceptions that I come across from beginner investors, like, you know, uh, the one investor was looking at his mortgage payments and just like, man, like this property like makes $200 a month in cash flow. Like, I don't even know why you do it. But I said, well, let's look at it. Like you're paying off $700 a month in principal. That's also profit. That's, you know, when you go to sell this property, you're going to owe less, which means you're going to walk away with more money. And same with in Canada, uh, capital gains are taxed at a more favorable rate than, say, employment income. And so, again, that's another tax advantage that we have as investors. Um, obviously, if you're flipping in Canada, it's going to be taxed as active income if you have a flipping business. But there's a lot of opportunities out there. And I think just far too many people have misinformation or have jumped to conclusions. So the key is, you know, join forums like Bigger Pockets or check out Mr. My Mustache. There's a million amazing YouTube channels out there and just absorb as much information as possible. But like we talked at the start of this episode, like don't get stuck in analysis paralysis. My business partner, Jeff Weibel, always loves to say, ready, shoot, aim. You know, <laughs> okay. too many people are looking for the... Too many people are looking for the absolute perfect investment. And if you're looking for the absolute perfect investment, you're going to be looking forever. You're going to be looking so forever. The, and sometimes the investment that is not absolutely perfect turns out to still be a great investment. We purchased a property that had so many things that needed to be repaired, um, needed to be repaired. And just because the market appreciated in that area, we were able to sell it. We didn't even buy and flip, Matt. We just bought and held <laughs> cash flow and then sold it because that particular market had gone up. So, but even if the market hadn't gone up, we could have held it for cash flow. So it's very yeah. important to run your numbers. I mean, I think ready aim shoot is a great idea, but also be ready to don't analysis paralysis, but also be ready. Don't then, you know, you need to run the numbers. The numbers are so important. And you mentioned something with landlording that I think is great with real estate investing in general. And that's don't take things personal. Don't get emotional. You know, there are properties that I looked at that I absolutely love, but the numbers just didn't work. You know what? I'm not living in this. This is a yes. rental. So if you don't fall in love with something and say, I need to have this or that or whatever, you know, you're not, you have to look at it from a business perspective. Yeah, 100% agree. Again, that's an issue that lots of beginner investors get where they get emotional and they get attached and, you know, it's a perfect house or it's just a beautiful neighborhood. But if the numbers don't work, it's all know, about the numbers. Yes, it's all about <laughs> the numbers. All right. Um, so we need to wrap up, but talk a little bit about your YouTube channel and how you got started as a YouTuber so that people can go and check out the channel, subscribe and get more wonderful information about investing. Yeah, awesome. So yeah, I'd love to have more subscribers. So it's just my name, Matt McKeever. Feel free to uh, Google or YouTube me and you'll find me. But the way I got started investing in real or in uh, YouTubing was actually because of real estate investing. So once I quit my day job, I had a lot more free time. And uh, <laughs> I didn't really know what to do with that free time. And so I wasted a few months of it and didn't find that overly satisfying. And then I would write these really long emails to my friends. They'd be and, and I mean, long emails and I get made fun of this all the time, but like three or 5,000 word emails to my friends <laughs> explaining exactly how they could get control of their financial lives within five years and quit their job and then come join me and just play. And no one responded to those emails. <laughs> um, it turns out that they were too long. And so... They're like, Matt, this is boring. Delete. Right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> TLDR. And uh, so I started thinking, I was like, well, how, like, you know, there has to be a way, like, it makes sense for people to get control of their financial lives. Like, how am I going to get it through to my friends? And uh, then a fellow investor I knew, 
literally just took like a shaky cell phone video when he was walking through a property. And immediately I understood so much about what he was doing on that project that it just blew my mind. I was like, I need to start making video content right away. And so that's why I started with my YouTube channel. Originally started out just documenting my experiences as a real estate investor. But eventually I started, you know, uh, just doc- talking about financial independence and retiring early in general. And now I also share just a lot of other small time landlords stories and their perspectives and their experiences just because I my biggest complaint was when I read books like Rich Dad Poor Dad or The Wealthy Barber is they always felt too theoretical and I wanted mm. to really get that hands-on experience and at the time when I was reading these books YouTube wasn't a thing so now that we have YouTube now that we have the ability to communicate and have these one-to-many conversations via video platform it just made so much sense for me so yeah I just love paying it or sorry i just love paying it forward and what's your channel for for the listeners yeah so it's just my name matt mckeever so i assume that'll be in the title it will uh, title and also if you guys go to the out of the box podcast.com we will have links to all of matt's stuff but i wasn't sure if you had like a silly fun name like you know the mortgage guy or something (laughs) yeah no i wasn't that creative (laughs) and just so you know i watched a couple of matt's videos that's how i found him for the podcast and you're not a comedian but your videos are hilarious Thank you. I appreciate that. And I do very, my best. Very, very entertaining. So guys, Matt is just as passionate as I am about getting you financially fit. So go on there and check out his videos. And he has a lot of really great information. Some of them are funny and interesting and intriguing and just good info. And some of them, you break it down a little bit accountant nerdy style with like the numbers yes. and stuff. <laughs> yeah, I, I try and provide the full spectrum. So Again, thank you so much for having me on this podcast. This was so much fun. I really enjoyed it. Great. And so you guys can check out him on his podcast. And as always, go on our website, outoftheboxpodcast.com. If you enjoyed the podcast, go on iTunes. The best way to share the podcast and get people to know about it is to leave a positive comment. We have tons of positive comments, but we can always use more. And as always, subscribe and like us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. Follow me on Twitter at Funny Rosie. This has been Out of the Box Podcast with Rosie Tran and special guest Nat McKeever. 